My name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club. And today we're talking about one of the most acclaimed Hong Kong movie directors out there. And that's Anne Hoi. The director of such films as Boat People, A Simple Life, Song of an Exile. Wait, are these any uh, martial arts or John Woo style gunplay films? Well, there might be. There is a film called Akam, which features such luminaries as Michelle Yeoh and Sammo Hung. She's done a variety of horror and genre films, mm-hmm. but... Anne Hoy is somebody who um, I would say is best known to serious fans of Hong Kong cinema because her best films are not the genre films. No. Her best films are the art house films. Mm-hmm. She came out of the uh, Hong Kong new wave with people like Choi Hark. So her films in that period were like angry mm-hmm. and they were aggressive in a way that I associate directly with Hong Kong cinema. Now, I was only marginally familiar with her before this week. So uh, this is definitely one of those weeks where I feel like I'm in the process of learning. Both of us. And in fact, her films are still quite hard to find. I was very shocked when I started looking for even some of her most famous films like uh, Song of the Exile Mm -hmm. and learning that it's only available on YouTube in like a VHS rip. And there's been no DVD and no Mm -hmm. Blu-ray. Doing a little bit more research, it seems that that's because she never really worked on those major films with... Golden Harvest or Cinema City. She worked with little production companies and I think that may be one of the reasons that her film never got the remasters that even like the slightest Sammo Hung picture gets. Yeah, and you know, she's her best films aren't genre films, mm-hmm. even though she worked in genre films. And also, uh, you know, again, I'm still learning about her, so I'm still not certain about her directorial signature uh, such as it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what it is. I can see some recurring themes, but it's not like Wong Kar Wai, where there's a really quickly recognizable style. When people write about her, they say that she is one of those chameleons in a way that a lot of um, Hong Kong directors can be, because you're usually at the whims of the market, so you need to produce something that will fit like this period. And she actually went through in the 90s, a very kind of commercial period where mm-hmm. people don't consider any of her best work except for one or two films came around there because she was really experimenting. She even made another um, Supernatural film in 2001 called Visible Secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched about seven of her films this week. And what really came out to me was that her style, while it has all the hallmarks of what I associate with Hong Kong cinema, it also doesn't have the drive of those films because that doesn't really interest her. Now, Now, Hong Kong films aren't really dealing with plot, but they do have a propulsiveness to them. Mm -hmm. And Anne Hoy's films are more interested in character and events Mm -hmm. and these slices. Even in the supernatural films and in her action pictures, she did one in mainland China, an adaptation of a very famous Wuxia novel called uh, Book and Sword. Mm -hmm. They're still very kind of like calmer Mm -hmm. than everything else that was being made around that time. Would it be unreasonable of me to suggest, too, that her career peaks early and late? Yes. Like, she made some great films in the 80s and early 90s, and now, more recently, she has once again made some films that have received international attention. Yeah. Earlier on in her career, um, she came right out of the gate with a film called The Secret, which I did get a chance to watch this week because it's one of the rare pictures that she made that actually got a rematch mastered blu-ray and it's interesting to watch it because it's definitely her grappling with what her style is going to be because this first picture is very much a hong kong
long version of Don't Look Now. It's mm-hmm. like a mystery with very elliptical editing, which she would revisit later on in her career. But here it's like, look at me. I'm a new filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should note as well of where she came from because she um, was born to parents that were Chinese and Japanese. That's very important because it does affect most of the cinema that she would tackle. Stories about these um, usually women that are, there's a feeling of cultural displacement. Yeah. Uh, she ended up going to uh, London to study film and literature uh, before coming back to Hong Kong and working in the TVB television uh, channel and documentaries. And by the way, to that feeling of displacement, I think that's another reason why up until now I haven't had a great handle on mm-hmm. her as an identity because she's somebody who has worked in the mainland, Taiwan, or many of her protagonists have been Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, she did a trilogy of films that deal with Vietnamese stories. Mm-hmm. Coming up as like a fan of Hong Kong cinema, she didn't have the things that I wanted, which were like the adrenaline shooting right into my veins. Uh-huh. And that's probably one of the reasons that I didn't explore her filmography more than I did. She is the kind of only female filmmaker from the Hong Kong Golden Age I can name off the top of my head. Yes. Yeah, I'm you sure there's name another one. Uh, no, not any that are of the stature of someone like Choi Hark or uh, John Woo or Wong Kar Wai. Exactly. Yeah. And she was colleagues with all of these people. Mm-hmm. When one of her early films, The Story of Wu Viet, had its midnight premiere in Hong Kong. And for people that don't know, Hong Kong films would always premiere at midnight. And that was their, you know, their big premiere of the film. Sure, sure. She said that she left the theater and John Woo was like, oh, yeah, I saw your movie. It was pretty good. Could have had better action scenes. <laughs> so, like, they were all aware of each other. I mean, Wang Jing said some pretty disparaging stuff about her as well. Oh, he well, he said something really bad about mm-hmm. one of her movies where he said, who would uh, sit there and spend two hours watching the story of a fat woman? Ugh, Wang Jing is a terrible man. Bad man. <laughs> yep. But back to Anne Hoy, I would say the movie that in my head I associate most with her, the one that has been the most acclaimed and that you often see on lists of the 100 best Chinese movies is 1982's Boat People. Yeah, this is a film that played at Con that got a lot of attention and is still unavailable anywhere in North America. And despite all the acclaim, is still somewhat controversial. Mm -hmm. So the story... (laughs) Is it? I, I, th- I think it is. I okay. mean, there there are a lot of critics, including critics that you would know who objected to wow. the, uh, and its portrayal of the issues it portrays. But mm-hmm. the plot it involves a Japanese photographer who has been allowed to come into Vietnam after the Vietnam War. So when the, the country had been sort of rebuilt and there was a new authoritarian government in charge, he's been invited to come in and document this glorious new Vietnam and showcase... Uh, how how wonderful it is. And Oh, could there perhaps be um, a reveal that this new authoritarian communist government doesn't work? Right. So the Japanese photographer starts to develops enough trust with his handlers that they let him go off on his own. And then he discovers a poor family mm-hmm. in the slums. Um, the mother of whom is a prostitute who works at a local brothel. And then he starts seeing the reality of the streets where people are just executed in broad daylight. Children rob those bodies for anything that they can get. Like if the bodies have gold teeth in Mm -hmm. them, they take them. And everyone is terrified of being sent to one of the cultural zones because that's where criminals and people that can't take care of themselves go. Even though the handlers say, 
oh no, the cultural zones are very good. It's to make people's lives better. And the photographer gets to see one and all these children are so happy there. Sure, they're not re-education camps. Mm-hmm. No, nothing like that. And also, it's just a country, at least as depicted in this movie, of just endless brutality and casual slaughter so you know we see a kid who just picks something up off the ground and looks at it and then explodes because it's a landmine so the the controversy is that this is not what vietnam was like after the war well you know what's funny when i was watching this movie i thought okay what do i know about the filmmakers who were in hong kong leading up to 1997 Mm -hmm. they were always finding ways to create little parables yes for example, a parable about, I don't know, the cultural revolution, the yeah. thing that defined people's lives in a horrifying way. Yeah, you know, what's an authoritarian mm. communist government that is eventually going to take over Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. So I assumed that this was a parable for the mainland. Yeah. And maybe it is. But what I also found out was this was one of the first Hong Kong productions that was uh, shot with the full cooperation of the People's Republic. Yes. So at, so the People's Republic... <laughs> she slipped one right by them. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I mean, the People's Republic uh, had been in conflict with Vietnam and was mm. very eager to have a portrait of Vietnam that looked very bad. Now, Anne Hoy has said that she based the film off interviews with actual refugees. She did do documentaries with the refugees that were coming to Hong Kong. They were all coming in these boats. Yeah. Hence the title. Whoa boy, does she put it on screen. So I know that the film has been uh, accused of being sensationalized. I mean, look, I'm, I'm approaching this with some trepidation just because like, I don't, I don't know anything about this subject. Mm. I don't know. What, no, me neither. So when I hear that the People's Republic was heavily involved in this film, I start to wonder, but I also don't know. So I'm just flagging this as I, I mean, something to follow up I, I've on. read some articles and Vietnam was a pretty bad place after yeah. the war. Like, I, I've, you know what? It pro- I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. <laughs> the fact that there was an authoritarian government that was controlling people, putting them into camps. And yeah, that sounds about right of, of history. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the way it turns out. Yeah. And you know what? I'm, I trust Anne Hoy, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, maybe I'm being more cautious than I need to be. Yeah, but, I think you are. But, so, but... but sometimes I look at a movie from another culture and I mm. realize how little I know about the culture. Nothing. You know? We yeah. know nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did like this movie though. And I think, you know, in addition to that. What do you think the idea of sensationalizing it though? Because I can understand where you're coming from that, you know, when you hear about the film, you imagine kind of like this gritty handheld realness and that's not how she approaches it. There's like very beautiful shots. She really captures a picturesque Vietnam. Well, there's a mix of shots, I mm. think, because some of those really violent scenes she does with a handheld style and it's very docu-realist. But when I hear that kind of like sensationalism, I think of like, oh, she like the director wants us to enjoy this. And I never get that indication from this picture. Well, no, it, it is a brutal film. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to watch at times. And I, I think the movie raises a lot of interesting questions about like journalistic ethics. Mm-hmm. You know, the photographer comes in and, you know, what right does he have to some of these images? He often talks to the poor people there who say, "Okay, you may have permission to take photos of us, but we don't have permission to be in those photos. (laughs) Why would you take these photos? These people are so ugly. That's one character says. Yeah. But these people could be executed for being in his photos. Mm-hmm. So, and so then it raises questions about what is the relationship between the photographer and the subject? Is there the potential for a collaborative relationship there? Mm-hmm. And we forgot one of the most important parts. This is the film debut of a little actor named Andy Lau. That's correct. Yes. Andy Lau being the most prolific 
Hong Kong actor ever, yeah. uh, star of Infernal Affairs, still acting to this day, even though he broke his back a year ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and here he is, a, a very young man who's trying to escape by any means possible, this nightmare that is Vietnam for him. I think we'll be hearing more about him later in this podcast. <laughs> yes, we will. Um, yeah, this is a film that I was happy to find a Blu-ray of it because uh, it was released in France. Mm. But other than that, like this feels like prime kind of like criterion material mm. to put out into the world. And it's baffling that it has not yet happened. It's definitely the sort of movie that you don't see coming from Hong Kong anymore. There was, I mean, no. there was that particular wave of, you know, early in the Hong Kong new wave, movies like Dangerous Encounter yeah. by Choi Hark, those those angry type films. Mm-hmm. And after Boat People, Anne Hoy would go into more of like a, I don't want to say mainstream direction, but like more commercial films. Mm-hmm. Like she did that uh, Wuxia picture like I talked about. She worked with the director she was the assistant of, King Hu, uh, on The Swordsman, which has a baffling six credited directors. Yeah. And I think there's even more than that that are not credited. Um, before, in 1990, she made another one of her major pictures, which is Song of the Exile. One of her most personal films. Mm-hmm. And it's a Hong Kong Taiwanese co-production, by the way. It's set in 1973, and it stars the great Maggie Chung as a... Chinese woman who's gone to London to study broadcast journalism. She gets rejected for a job at the BBC. Wonder why? Yeah. And then she goes back to Hong Kong to attend her sister's wedding. She's always had a strained relationship with her mother, and the strain becomes even greater as she returns to face her cultural roots because her mother is actually Japanese. And I was surprised to learn in this film that Maggie Chung actually did not know that until about like 30 minutes into the picture. Interesting. They just have a mm. kind of angry relationship and you see through flashbacks that like it was when she was a child, there was like a weird disconnect in what was going on. And it's only as the movie rolls around that we learn that it's because uh, Maggie Chung's mother could not speak Mandarin when she arrived. Um, her husband's grandparents kind of, you know, they weren't mean to her, but they disapproved of her yeah. and would say stuff like, oh, yeah, they eat their food cold. Chinese food is better. And so there was a lot of meddling mm-hmm. kind of and manipulation. And the daughter growing up always preferred to spend time with her grandparents. Yes. And then finally, I, I guess this is a pretty spoiler heavy. I mean, recap, we to talk about the, uh, the movie, we have to talk about the plot. So... It eventually climaxes with Maggie Chung and her mother visiting her mother's birthplace, where she confronts some of her old family, and Maggie Chung herself becomes more comfortable with her own heritage. Because she experiences a version of what her mother went through. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm Canadian, and I don't have the kind of cultural, I guess, distances between, like, China and Japan, or the relationship that they have, but I saw myself in the same way that Maggie Chung reacted to her parents in the way that I did to my French heritage, which I was like, I don't care, like, this is dumb. I don't want to do any of that. And it wasn't until I moved away Mm -hmm. and I got perspective that I'm like, oh, I understand why they were fighting so hard or they acted this way, but I couldn't understand because I was too close to it. Yeah, and I mean, I I think there are a lot of things that you can kind of connect to depending on Mm -hmm. what your culture is. I mean, my own parents, you know, 
uh, one side is Irish Catholic and the other side is Irish Protestant, which is not <laughs> yes, the same. But, but oh man! Well, believe me, there was a time yeah. when these faiths were didn't get along too well. And I mean, it's not as like vast a gap as it is between Japan and China, especially the relationship they have. The fact that they were in a world war, and that's one of the reasons that not only did Maggie Chung's mother get together with her father. But that there's strained family relationships as well that come out of that. And the strained relationship in the movie, I think, rings very true. Mm-hmm. You know? And it, and it, and like when you watch this movie, you understand why it's happening. But it's also like, that's it? Like, like yeah. this is what? But it just builds and it builds and it builds. And, and if it's been unspoken for yeah, so long. That like yeah. there's no way to deal with it. Yeah. You know, Anne Hoy's movies do something that I never see any Hong Kong films do, and that there is a language barrier between characters, whether it be here, where characters are speaking Cantonese, Mandarin, English, and uh, Japanese, or whether it's in her later films, where like one character turns and goes, oh, can you not smoke? And the other character doesn't understand because she's speaking Cantonese mm-hmm. and he speaks Mandarin. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a very like fascinating like look into Hong Kong cinema. I mean, when I started getting VCDs for the movies, I didn't understand why there were two different tracks coming out of the left and the right and because it was Cantonese and Mandarin. Yeah. And you had to pick which one. And I'm like, which one is the... Re-? Like, what was it recorded in? I know it's post-sync, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then you find out and you figure out and what that means. I mean, mm-hmm. like, Song of the Exile... There's so much to like chew on in the idea that Maggie Chung is from Hong Kong as well. Mm-hmm. So she's not even like mainland Chinese like her grandparents are. Mm-hmm. And she feels that she's different than all of her family members. Mm-hmm. And that's a really complex story to tell. And I think that a movie like this does it very well. And I think people growing up are always mm-hmm. f- trying to find ways to come into their own as mm-hmm. their own person. And at what point can you do that while also not forsaking your past? Yes. You know? Or just fighting against what you perceive to be illogical blocks that yeah. you're like, why are you acting like this? Like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the movie ends Maggie Chung becoming a documentarian in Hong Kong, just like uh, Anne Hoy did. Yes. <laughs> uh, There's another movie that is unavailable anywhere. It exists only on VHS, which is baffling to me. I remember when I took uh, Chinese cinema at U of T, Mm. the prof, the legendary Bart Testa. Oh, yeah. uh, At one point, he said, real Torontonians will know Bart Testa. (laughs) Yes. Uh, At one point, he said that if he could program a retrospective of any Chinese filmmaker, it would be Anne Hoy, Mm. uh, which always stuck in my mind. I thought that was very interesting. And I, I mean, the films have so much to say about uh, national identity, and they're also so underseen. When we think of Hong Kong, we think of this like neon lit uh, fantasy world almost. Mm. Even the films are wa- of Wong Kar Wai. Chunking Express. It's like a yeah. mythological kind of like romantic look at Hong mm. Kong. And Anne Hoy is someone who presents Hong Kong as this is just a place that you live yeah, in. It's very functional. Yeah, and it's like dirty and it's cramped. But it's not really like a hellhole. Like, it's not like a Ringo Lamb. Like, oh, my God, everything's on fire. It's just like, this is your day to day. Well, late. I don't want to jump to it too quickly, but A Simple Life. Yeah. All the spaces in that movie are so blandly functional. So, as we mentioned, that in the 90s, uh, Anne Hoy basically just... People have said that she kind of spun her wheels a little bit. That she kept making movies, but there wasn't the, like, big passionate projects. Other than Summer Snow, which was about a woman having to take care of a father-in-law who was suffering from Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Um, A theme that would run through many of her films. 
and that one won tons of awards. And I mean, I checked out Visible Secret from 2001, which I found fascinating because it has all the hallmarks. And real Hong Kong film heads will know what a 2000 Hong Kong film looks like. Oh, yeah. Like it's too saturated. It's like overexposed. A yeah, bit. yeah. And it and she uses all like the crazy camera angles that they use in uh, films like Gen X Cops. <laughs> it, it actually stars Shu uh, Key, right, uh, of the assassin and the transporter and a lot of category three films <laughs> as a woman who sees ghosts out of her left eye. And, but instead of being about kind of wacky hijinks, it's mostly like building dread as the new um, boyfriend that she meets and who's the POV of this film is like all this weird stuff is going on around him. And, you know, Anne Hoy, I watched, you know, her other uh, supernatural film, the spooky bunch. And I was surprised to find that her interest in the supernatural is the idea of possession which is not something that i would see a lot in like the wacky mr vampire films unless it's done from like a comedic perspective mm. she's using it more of like what does it mean from like a cultural jump and where does anger come from why would somebody be possessed mm. you know after visible secret she would continue to make films until her big one, which we mentioned, A Simple Life. Well, hang on. Before A Simple Life, I want to mention that we both watched a movie of oh, hers that's right. from the 90s, which I think we both watched it because it was irresistible sounding. Yes. It's called Ah Cam, mm -hmm. also known as The Stunt Woman. Yep. It stars Michelle Yeoh as a stunt woman in the Hong Kong film industry who's working on a film directed by Mr. Sammo Hung. Yes. Oh, no, not directed by him. He's the action choreographer on the picture. Oh, okay. Because um, Michelle Yeoh is a kung fu artist she comes to a set she gets a job with Sam Hung and it's just like a day in day out of like what she's going through on these sets how dangerous it is uh -huh. but how all these stunt people they do kind of bond together but then it becomes a triad kind of action melodrama so uh, this movie is 90 minutes and for the first hour it's very coherent it's straight ahead at one point Michelle Yeoh leaves the stunt world to um work for her boyfriend at a just like lame bar where she feels no satisfaction. She's treated like garbage until she goes back to the stunt world and she pulls off a big stunt. She's back into it. And then the film goes crazy in not a good way. Yeah. It, in a way that feels unfinished. And supposedly the reason for that is that Michelle Yeoh on the big stunt in the movie where she's supposed to gain back her confidence injured herself very badly and the end credits play to it and it's mm -hmm. absolutely hair-raising yes it's a scene where she jumps off a bridge onto a moving car and she doesn't actually in real life she didn't jump onto the moving car she jumped onto a bunch of mattresses on the ground yeah but it looks I, like they I, needed a few more mattresses i think she landed incorrectly how was there no wire on her when she was doing it i guess they had no descendant rigs or anything like that i mean you look at this and you really understand that yeah. safety conditions were Oof. not great in the hong kong film industry it, by the way, in Super Cop, which mm -hmm. I watched again recently, there's that famous scene where Michelle Yeoh drives her motorcycle onto the train. And barely makes it. <laughs> in the credits, you see that they did two bad takes first, and she rides her motorcycle onto the train and then off it and lands on a bunch of mattresses. Mm -hmm. So that was safety. That yeah. was a bunch of mattresses. And a bunch of boxes, usually, that you would pile <laughs> up uh, and do a bunch of layers on. Uh, I mean, like... Akam is very interesting for that first hour because you get a look into the Hong Kong film industry that you really don't get anywhere else yeah. with like a dubbed Sammo Hong because that's not his voice. Did you notice that? You're going yeah. to talk like this the entire time. Yeah, and it's got some 
kind of awkwardly integrated but good action scenes. Yep, by... directed by Chin Su Tong. I, I, I knew you would know that. Yeah, yeah. Chinese ghost story. I can see one of his action scenes and know instantly that it's him. The minute I saw his name in the credits, I was like, Justin just perked up right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, like, it's not a film I would recommend. It's definitely um, Hoi, like, at her most commercial. It even starts with, like, a big, long crane move. Like, look at me. Look what I'm doing. But, I mean, if you're a Hong Kong cinema head, by all means, check, check it, it out. out. And maybe just check out after that first hour because trust me while there is a weird fight on like the kind of boats you'd see at like um, a theme park that goes up and down not as satisfying as you want it to be but anyway we watched one of her most acclaimed films Mm. from 2012 called A Simple Life which I had seen actually around the time it came out I think Mm -hmm. but I mean, it just didn't even register with me at the time. And I don't know. Yeah, you're probably like, why isn't Sammo Hung doing some fisticuffs? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I watched it again now. And I guess those years make a difference. Yeah. Because you're not a young 20 something. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm going to live forever. I'm not 22 years old anymore. Now I'm 30 and I've I've aged horrifically Mm. in that time. (laughs) Everyone around me has aged horrifically. And so now a simple life absolutely knocked me out. I mean, you're making it sound like some kind of a horror show. But it's not. It's the story of a maid played by uh, Denny Ip of a rich family. I mean, not even like super rich. They're like wealthy. So like they can afford a maid, but they don't live in a mansion by any stretch of the imagination. And she has served this family for four generations Mm -hmm. to the point where now... She's only serving one person, the the last generation, the last one who still lives in Hong Kong. And it's the hunk himself, Andy Lau. And Andy Lau plays a successful Hong Kong film producer. He's currently working on a project with Choi Hark and Sammo Hung. <laughs> yep. As uh, themselves. Andy Lau in this role is actually portraying the screenwriter and producer of the film, who this is actually based on his real life story. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. What happens is that the maid, Atau, uh, has a stroke. And so decisions need to be made where Andy Lau wants to put her in like a fancy uh, senior's home. But she's like, no, I don't want that. I don't want you spending any money on me. Just put me in like the lower kind of class place. I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I've taken care of myself before. I'll take care of myself now. So what the movie is, is just watching her life. There's no big dramatic like turns or twists or terrible decisions characters make. Mm. It's just kind of like a day in day out. It's very much like Ozu. Mm-hmm. And I kept watching this movie waiting for the something big thing to, to happen. happen. Are they going to have a big confrontation? Mm-hmm. Uh, is something happen? But but no. It's just it's very simple. It's a lot of nice scenes mm-hmm. of them spending time together because he keeps visiting her mm-hmm. even though she's not serving him anymore. Yeah. But these are two people who have been together forever for his whole life. Ugh, just the scene where like he first comes and visits her and they're like, who's this? Is this your grandson? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm her grandson. Yeah. Uh, the feels right here. And there's another scene where they're looking over some of his old belongings. Mm. And again, not much happens in this scene, but just the warmth that they have together is incredibly powerful. And Hoy makes such a smart decision in never showing any flashbacks to anything. Mm. So we're always living in the words of these characters and the um, conversations that they're having so the warmth comes out of that and it can be that much more emotional because the viewers kind of filling in those gaps and the fact that andy lau and dina ip together can Mm. create that yes and like the idea that this is such a normal movie but for people who are even slightly familiar with hong kong cinema it is packed with stars (laughs) everywhere you look most of the time playing themselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the film seems to um uh, imply that the new Troy Hark film sucks yeah (laughs) because they go to a premiere and they leave and they're like oh terrible movie I'm sure they were right (laughs) yeah 
And so, like, this very calm, gentle, never, like, dull. Like, it's never like, oh, come on, move on. But certainly melancholy. Those times when she's at this, uh, you know, old folks home. Mm -hmm. And she eventually sort of comes to a sort of peace with it. But it's very difficult for her there. Uh, because she doesn't have much privacy there and she's surrounded by a lot of other old people who, you know, have, have seen better days. Mm-hmm. And there are times when it looks a little bit abject. And again, she could take Andy Lau's money. He's willing to get her a luxury place, but she doesn't feel entitled to it somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like a lot of Anne Hoy films. It doesn't show the old folks home or Hong Kong as like this awful like hellscape. Mm-hmm. Like it's not great. But the people are doing their best at this job. Mm-hmm. The people there want to be friendly. They have their flaws. Mm-hmm. But there's no, like, big, oh, my God, I can't believe he stole my this and it's going to throw everything into confusion. It's just, like, day in, mm-hmm. day out until in just, like, a transition from scene to scene, like, it's over. Like, because she's reached that point that her life finally has to end. And the relationship between the two of them was very powerful to me because there does come a point when, like, he was with her when he was a small boy. Mm-hmm. And the roles have reversed somewhat, but but it's complicated, right? Yeah. The, the roles will never be entirely reversed. You know, what do you do when somebody like that, when you're when you're graduating to a new position in relation to another person? What, mm-hmm. what do you do when you're now more powerful than your guardian? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it, I think that it's just very moving in the way that it presents yeah. it. Like you said, and what are these two in relation to each other now anymore? I mean, I mean, she was well, she, well I h- mean, hired help. Yeah, but, but she's so much more than that. Yeah, he saw her as essentially like a family member yeah. because she was always there. Like, there's never a moment where someone's like. Why do you like treat her so well? Mm-hmm. Like like she's not a family member. Mm-hmm. It's like no, she is a family member and that's just the way that it is. Yeah. Until, you know, the credits roll and she passes away like And I was also stunned at the end because uh, again it, it it ends as it should. Mm-hmm. But I, it was at the end that I realized that that big catharsis or that big emotional, that overt emotional moment wasn't going to happen. But the thing is, like, that's how people die, though. Yeah. Like, there's not, like, a big moment or a big reveal or a big goodbye. It's like you're sleeping in a chair and, like, a doctor comes and tells you, I'm sorry, but they passed away. Yeah. Or you get on, like, you have to continue your life at one point. Like, that happens in this movie where Andy Lau is like, I, I need to go back to work. Like, uh-huh. I can't be by her side. And essentially, their story together was already over. Mm-hmm. Except for the fact that they loved each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, it makes, you know, complete sense that this was as big a hit as it was. Mm-hmm. The fact that it was such a, an emotional story and that it did contrast these stars against such a simple story. And I think that, like, Hong Kong audiences really responded to that as well. Yeah. And it begs the question, what is Anne Hoy's career going to be from this point on? Is she going to be like Johnny Toe? She'll just retire? How can how can anybody make movies in Hong Kong anymore? She's made a couple of acclaimed films since this She one, has. Too. But, like, she hasn't made one since uh, 2017. And, like just hearing about what's going on in Hong Kong right now, China doesn't have a rating system. It just has a pass or fail rating system. That is horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I mean, the thing about Hong Kong cinema is there hasn't been a new director in ages, right? A a, a good new director. Yeah, Yeah. like a director who could continue to make... I think the last one was probably... I'm going to get his name wrong. It's like Pang Ho Chung, the director who made... um, Gallants? uh, No, uh, that's Clement Chen. Um, It's the guy who made... 
you shoot, I shoot, and he made Love in a Puff mm. and like Love in the Buff, and he oh, he did Dream Home as well. Okay. So he's been able to like carve out a little bit of a career, but I think even him, he's kind of slowing down because like Johnny Toe recently um, announced that he's retiring because he just can't make movies anymore. Yeah, there's I, no point. I remember we saw Johnny Toe, uh, I think, talk at the Lightbox one time, and he was saying, "Oh no, it, it was it was in an interview in Cineus. Oh, what a what a great which uh, was an incredible interview where he was saying, yeah." I feel like every movie I've made in the mainland is irreparably compromised. And they're like, even this one? And he's like, yeah, that one was also compromised. Like Drug War, great film, but to him, it's it's too compromised. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't see any point in continuing to make movies. It's tragic. It's, I, it's awful. Like, we're not going to get any more boat people coming out of China until, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, just today that we're recording this, there was a giant protest of a million people mm-hmm. in Hong Kong against a new law that was going to be uh, passed. And, um, you know, the official that they were having the march against, she went, eh, I don't care. I'm still going to pass this law. Nothing you can do about it. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Forget it, Jake. It's Hong Kong. Oh, God. Well, I mean, I hope this episode makes people go and check out Anne Hoy's film as difficult as they are to see at all. I would recommend A Simple Life. Yeah. Start with that one. Very easy to get. If you have a library near you, guarantee they have it in the um, Chinese DVD section, which <laughs> is much bigger than you think it is. That's right. If you live in a, you know, uh, a major town. Yeah. All right. Do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Ben Sidewell, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will. I was introduced to your podcast by No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, and ever since, I've been plowing through your back episodes at work. I love your full-spectrum approach to film appreciation. Where else will Godard at his most obtruse and Bruce Lee punching a bull be discussed with equal reverence and enthusiasm? <laughs> That's a reference to the film Challenge of the Tiger. <laughs> I will tell you where they uh, will be talked at the same level. Nowhere but here. <laughs> Guaranteed. Since I recently subscribed to the Criterion channel, I've been watching some of your recommendations. And one of the first movies I tried was City Lights. I'd never seriously watched a silent movie before, so I wasn't sure how it would go. But once the movie was underway, a surprising thing happened. I basically forgot the movie was silent. Maybe it was Chaplin's mastery at work, or maybe a lifetime of playing video games had primed me to appreciate storytelling via pantomime and title cards. I'm so happy to hear this. But whatever the case, I was completely engaged in the story, and the fact that there was no spoken dialogue didn't matter at all. If any listeners out there have been reluctant to try watching silent movies, I urge them to go for it. It's not as big a deal as you might think. Afterwards, I watched Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. Yes. <laughs> this is the, is that on the Criterion channel? All, all The two greatest screen clowns, <laughs> Charlie Chaplin and Sammy Petrillo. This is the perfect double bill to make you question if sound on film was really the great <laughs> idea everyone thought it was. <laughs> Thanks for the great podcast, Ben. P.S. Yes, I watched Detour. <laughs> Thank well, you for that letter. That was catnip for me. Um, do you do you think that people will continue to watch silent films? Well, I think some people will yeah, always watch Probably the same films. amount that are watching them now, I would say. Well, it's tragic to me that more people don't watch Charlie Chaplin mm-hmm. because I think that Chaplin is the most accessible of great filmmakers yeah. if you let him be. Anybody, any language, any culture, mm-hmm. sit them down and watch Chaplin. He's got something for you. I mean, the thing about silent films is that they didn't really play when I was a kid on television. No. And I think that even like in the 70s, they didn't really play on television because nobody wanted to watch silent films. Yeah. So it was always something that you had to go out and watch for yourself if you wanted to see them. And it does require a different kind of concentration. It does. You can't look at your phone. Nope. 
because you're going to find the film super slow. <laughs> so you just got to sit down and you just got to watch them. And you got to watch, you know, start with the great ones. So you're like, oh, wow, didn't feel silent at all. Then watch the good but not great ones. And you'd be like, ah, it feels a little slow. <laughs> wow. I would say start with Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's good entry point. Very easy ones. Keaton is best, especially good for kids because oh, yeah. that physical comedy, they understand it right away. Watch Sherlock Jr. Mm-hmm. 45 minutes. All right. So our next letter is from Adam Bishop. And the subject line is, do we have any mail? Will Sloan. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Justin and Will. Before I started listening to your show, I asked if I should start from the beginning or pick topics I knew or liked. I was recommended to start Start from the beginning, but I did the opposite. (laughs) Don't start from the beginning. This isn't The Wire. (laughs) Start from the beginning. The uh, critical evolution of us as a show. I got to know you both from your early episodes to the later ones with great enjoyment. I'm currently on episode 72 after finally starting from the beginning. Wow. (laughs) Once they're hooked, they they want to listen to it all. And uh, I'm going through the episodes I skipped and I'm having a great time listening. Hearing both of you talk about obscure movies I know and love. Black Mask two versus Michael Jackson's ghost amongst others. When, when did I talk about Michael Jackson's ghost? When did we talk about Michael Jackson's ghost? I mean, I don't think we've ever, did we? Well, I, that's the one that was originally directed by Mick Garris and then Stan Winston came on and finished it. I, I didn't know that. I mean, I did know that Stephen King has a writing credit on it. <laughs> Michael Jackson's ghost is hilarious. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised it came up at some point in the 170 episodes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, the letter continues. I'm fond of some Canadian movies that I'm always trying to push on my friends, such as The Dog Who Stopped the War, Cube, and Tommy Trickster, and The Stamp Traveler. Have you had the pleasure of viewing any of these films? I've seen Cube. Yes. So the other two are from a Quebec film series. Ugh, I can't remember what it is in English. It's like Le Comte something in French, and it was a film series with the weirdest films imaginable. That's where a little picture called The Peanut Butter Solution came out of, ah, yes. which every Canadian has seen. Cube, not part of that series, uh, but yes, we are Canadians and we are legally obligated to see that film. Yeah. <laughs> I have all three of them. Cube, Cube 2, Hypercube, Cube 3, Zero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I like them. Uh, and I would, I, I feel like, like the peanut butter solution. Did we watch it together? No. In fact, I have never seen the peanut butter solution. That would definitely make. Patreon? Yeah. Pa- good Patreon material. So we will definitely be getting to that one. And the dog who stopped the war is a kid's film with the most depressing ending of any kid's film ever. Do you know how the dog stopped the war? He died. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, oh, wow. And then there's a big twist on this letter. What are your thoughts on Highlander? It's my all time favorite movie franchise. I like the first Highlander. I saw the first Highlander when I was in high school. Saw it with my friends. Mm-hmm. We had a good time with it. I haven't. What about sp- Highlander 2, The Quickening? Since then, I've spent no time in the Highlander universe. <laughs> but- or, I mean, Highlander 2 is, I don't know if you've heard the story, but Highlander 2 was famously trashed like to high heaven when it was released. Well, I remember watching the Siskel and Ebert review where they really, yeah. uh, they've done three versions of the movie released on like VHS, DVD, <laughs> Laserdisc since then trying to salvage something out of it. <laughs> and Highlander three, not very good. Highlander four, one of Donnie Yen's first uh, movie appearances. That's Highlander Endgame, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, which brought the Highlander TV sh- series and Christopher Lambert together for the first time. That was the uh, most intense pronunciation <laughs> of his name I've ever heard. Do you know he dubs his own voice in French on the movies? I did not know that. Uh, yeah, I have um, the seven ripoff. He made Resurrection. And just out of curiosity, I skipped it to the French track. His voice is coming out of his mouth. Nice. 
Did you see on Twitter recently, Mike Leader, like one of the big like um, Hong Kong, um, he's like a casting agent. He's in the industry, does commentaries, he writes, Yeah. posted a clip of Highlander Endgame. And I posted in return like, oh yeah, I remember seeing this movie. It's a great Donnie Yen fight. And then I was like, can't wait for Donnie Yen to come back. And then he never did. And then the star of Highlander Endgame said, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yep. So uh, on Twitter, I'm, you can just meet your heroes. I'm glad that book has been closed and I don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. Highlander does have an amazing Queen soundtrack, even though uh, a certain movie would make you think those songs were in for other reasons. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Adam. And I'm. Uh, we appreciate you started from the beginning. <laughs> this week on the Patreon, from the sublime to the ridiculous, we are tackling Adam Sandler's Phil Modit, that's my boy. <laughs> the 120 Days of Sodom of Adam Sandler's career. What a movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> Will's um, jaw unhinged as it played. He was like, ugh, I hate Adam Sandler. Ah, that's pretty funny. And as it kept playing, you're like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you definitely want to listen to us talk about a film that could be the death knell of civilization. And you can do that by becoming a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. Next week on the podcast, we're traveling from Asia to Africa as we examine Wakaliwood cinema. What is Wakaliwood cinema, you ask? It is a very particular um, band of filmmakers who are based in rural Uganda mm-hmm. who make no budget action movies together. The American Genre Film Archive just put out a new Blu-ray of two of the best films to come out of this community in Uganda. Bad Black and Who Killed Captain Alex? Were you there when we did the screening at the Royal? Yes, I was. Okay, we'll talk about that on the episode. Great night. Yeah, uh, never to be repeated anywhere because it was crazy. But please, this new Blu-ray. Have you explored it? It's amazing. They put Every time, like, what Hollywood was mentioned in, like, local television, there's, like, a Vice documentary on it. There's a 30-minute, like, YouTube essay somebody did. There's commentary with the director and the uh, guy from New York who went to, like, stay with him to make these movies. It is packed with stuff. So we're going to be watching Bad Black and Who Killed Captain Alex. Mm-hmm. Look these movies up. You can find them. Yeah, Who Killed Captain Alex is on YouTube. You want to you... watch it with the soundtrack. Yeah, when you're going to watch it, there's going to be a, the voice of a guy talking through throughout it that is part of the movie it is not like a commentary track that's playing over it so consider that part of the experience mm-hmm. but we're going to get more into that when we talk about it next week until then my name is Glue. i'm will slow thanks for listening justin you often make fun of me because i don't watch a lot of the tv shows <laughs> yeah okay uh, yep I do. we're in the era of peak tv prestige mm. tv well i finally caught up with one it's called project greenlight <laughs> okay which one did you watch the most recent one i haven't seen that one the last one i only watched one season and I actually really enjoyed it and it was john Gulliger, and he was making a horror film called feast okay that one i actually really got into and i know that previous to that there was two other seasons the battle of shaker heights yeah and- with uh shield and stolen summer that's right uh, but i think it's the fourth one that one in the age of twitter it came out and then it like come out of nowhere as well like there hadn't been a project Greenlight for like 10 years that's right and the conceit of it is that they're making a comedy so oh. it's, it's matt and ben but it's also peter and bobby farley oh uh, um you academy award winning um peter, one, farley. peter farley yeah and they're the mentors and oh my god um, i've i've 
watched four episodes of the season. I'm shocked you were following it when it was happening on TV, because I remember Twitter was a buzz. So the first episode, there's a moment... There's a black female producer Mm -hmm. there who is the producer of this film they're going to make. And she made, she was the producer on Dear White People, But I'm a Cheerleader. I mean, those are great movies. And she has a lot of experience making low budget films. And she's also, you know, very attuned to issues of diversity and representation. So she challenges Matt Damon. They're going to make this script, which is clearly very sexist. Mm -hmm. And And, terrible. Yeah. and, And there was... There was a, a, a man-woman di- woman directing team who were in contention, and this producer, uh, Effie Brown is her name, she's talking to Matt Damon about, oh, you know, maybe we should consider them because, you know, they're attuned to some of the issues about this. And then Matt Damon goes on this, you know, rant about diversity. Oh, my um, God. About how diversity is great, but also we need to pick the best director for the job. <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, this went viral when it ended. Anytime, and you hear this all the time, where someone's like, Listen, it's not about being a man or a woman or being about black or Asian. It's about being the best. If they're the best, they're going to rise to the top. And it's like, that's not how fucking like racism works, you idiot. So they picked this guy who I'm convinced they picked him because he was the worst possible choice. Yes, because like the director is like, I, we need something dramatic to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, mm-hmm. need, they need drama. And so they pick a guy who uh, he's like a big art film guy. He wants to Ugh. he wants to be Ingmar Bergman. Wait, have you gotten to the episode? Because I remember this where he's like, I need to shoot on film yes yes <laughs> so i'm all the way through pre-production now, okay and you know how the film ended up right oh, like zero percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> yep. so in the second episode he decides i don't want to do this script i actually want to do my own script Ugh. and then they buy it and you know what happened what keeps going on through it is this producer effie brown keeps telling him you're insane if you want to shoot on film we don't have the money for mm-hmm. film we have three million dollars and at every step of the way, this filmmaker is refusing to compromise. They're showing him house after house after house where they could film this. He's like, you know, it's just not the right 18th century Connecticut feel. Ugh. These are like the shows like like I couldn't watch a show like this. I'd be like, ah! Well, I was thinking of you while I was watching it yeah. because I was thinking you've made movies. I'd be like, oh, I have a house. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'll make it work. <laughs> and, and Effie Brown is saying to him, look, you've got to choose your battles mm-hmm. and film on this it's not your battle. And to so, shoot. what you is shoot he, on a fucking yeah. red or, uh, or or an area Alexa? You have a three million dollar budget. You're good. But the thing about this guy is, he's somebody who's thirty years old. He's never had a real job, and his parents pay for his really? condo in Manhattan. Holy shit! He's very rich. They paid for him to go off and make short films in Africa. Yeah, and it's, in Africa. <laughs> yes, and so now he's saying like, oh, uh, so I'm not used to working in this studio environment. I'm more used to working in kind of an, an artistic environment. Mm. So. So he thinks he's Orson Welles. Yes. And he's fighting with this producer who seems very reasonable mm-hmm. and very competent. And whenever there's a dispute, he just goes to Matt and Ben. Ugh. And he's yeah, like, yeah. And he's like, you know, I really want to shoot on film. And they're like, you know what? I love shooting on film, too. I'll support you in this. And so the thing that I just got to was he did get to shoot on film, but now he's lost two shooting days in exchange. Yeah. And what he really is going to need are those shooting days, not film. I mean, it doesn't matter because the film sucks when it came out. And everybody who's seen it, I didn't check it out, uh, was like, it has no visual panache. It's boring. It's unfunny. It's it's nothing. It's made by somebody who doesn't know how to make movies. And I just think that in this show, you can see everything that's wrong with 
the film industry. <laughs> yes. It's the fact that all the powerful people here are just idiots with no taste. That are white and men. That are white and men. No matter how much experience the competent people have. And this black woman producer mm-hmm. who is extremely experienced, she has to deal with like fucking Peter Fairley calling up and saying, hey, I don't Academy know. Award winning Peter right. Fairley. Holy shit. Well, I, I don't know why you're being toxic with me. You know, the director, he Ugh. seems like an all right guy. I'm just reverse racism right here. Basically. Ugh. Oh, basically God. so it's just how many episodes do you have left to go well, through well I watched four and is I, there one where I mean there's gotta be one where like they screen the film right and it like stinks well what my friend told me as we were watching mm. it was he said uh, in the last episode Matt Damon watches it and you can tell he doesn't like it and he's like yeah not really my kind of film <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that guy's dead in the water, unless we look at his IMDb and he has like five other no, films. No, I liked, He's done. Oh, he's done? Yeah, yeah. good for him. I mean, it, on the one hand, it's like not fair that they did this to him because... They, yeah, but on the other hand, he's an arrogant, rich asshole who he, happily walked into this position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like the, the horror one is actually really interesting because... I actually really like the film that came out of it, Feast. Mm-hmm. And you can see how much you're struggling to make something good and like figuring out the problems of shooting a picture like this. Mm-hmm. There's always like the asshole producer who doesn't know what he's doing, trying to push everybody around. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, now that you talk about it, that season of TV sounds like something that'd be shown in film schools and be yeah. like, not only do you have the process of how bad it can go in the wrong decision that you can make whether it's been edited or i'm sure the guy's like oh they made me look bad that's not what actually happened uh you also have the end result yeah and you can be like look at this look at this piece like the guy's shit. not willing to make any compromise whatsoever that's and- how you fucking make movies yeah yeah well you know now you're getting me excited to watch it it's you're gonna love it <laughs>